0: You are listening to Counterterrorism After 9-11, a podcast series exploring how our field has changed in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Today, Counterterrorism After 9-11 is speaking to Fenula Neolain, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism. She will be sharing her views on critical human rights and global challenges related to counterterrorism and how they have changed after 9-11. Interviewing her is Tanya Mera, a Senior Research Fellow and Program Lead, Rule of Law Responses to Terrorism at ICCT.
1: Today we have with us Professor Fionula Niolen, and she's the Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms while Countering Terrorism. Welcome. I'm very happy to have you here with us and to be able to conduct this uh, interview with you. So my first question would be, where were you on 9-11, and what do you recall about that day?
2: So I was in a maternity hospital. I had just given birth to my first son, and I was—he was uh, he was five days old. And I I had taught and lived in New York for many years, and I do recall waking up that morning with a very small baby in my arms and thinking that the world had just changed absolutely. We had many friends in New York and my sister lived not far from the Twin Towers. So we were extraordinarily anxious about those that we knew. And, um, but there it was. All life was in my arms and all life was being destroyed at the same time. So it was a very, it's a very vivid memory for me.
1: I never knew this, uh, Fiorina, that uh, certainly gives a different uh, take on uh, what has happened. Uh, on that day, um, while you are uh, entering motherhood, uh, and lives are being destroyed on the other side of the country, so how did nine eleven impact your professional path, your career?
2: Well, for me personally, I as I think uh, many may know, spent much of my life in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and terrorism, counter-terrorism, armed conflict. And the challenges of protecting rights were nothing new in many ways. And so oddly enough, I would not say that 9-11 changed my path. What 9-11 did was brought so much of the experience that I had had for 20 years of living and working in Belfast as a lawyer through the conflict. Really made a set of skills and knowledges that most people thought were pretty irrelevant or at least only relevant to very narrow parts of the world brought that set of skills to greater relevance, I guess, and prominence globally. So it's really, for me, 9-11 was the catapulting of taking things that I had done locally and domestically in terms of protecting rights in the context of um, conflict and bringing those into a different international global arena.
1: The terrorist attacks of 9-11 demonstrated how vulnerable civilians are. As a result, the international community was determined to fight terrorism in all its forms, and the War on Terror was born. It was also used to justify the military interventions in Iraq and in Afghanistan. It has led to a proliferation of legislation, policies and practices to counter terrorism. Clearly, terrorism has an impact on human rights and the rule of law. It directly impacts the right to life. But how have counterterrorism measures impacted human rights since 9-11?
2: So I think they've impacted counterterrorism measures taken since 9-11 have had a catastrophic effect on human rights. We shouldn't forget that after 9-11, it was very clear, made clear by uh, the then U.S. President George Bush, the second in his famous phrasing that you're either with us or against us, Uh, by the Counterterrorism Committee, newly established in the weeks following 9-11 in New York, that counterterrorism was a human rights-free zone. Human rights was neither welcomed nor wanted in counterterrorism. And that shift, that profound shift, that normative shift, has been devastating for human rights around the globe. More than that, in the same breath, we know now, we didn't know it then, but the United States was embarking on a, on a road of using systematic torture, rendition, extrajudicial execution, and arbitrary detention as the day-to-day modality of addressing the war, the so-called war on terror. And the effects of that have been felt not only in the places where the United States has exercised that kind of lawless practice. It may be rule by law. It's not rule of law, because of course there were rules written, the torture memos, for example, to legalize the utterly illegal at that time. And I suppose the third thing that happened in this period was that we saw the growth of a global counterterrorism architecture, its nascent development through the counterterrorism committee, through the establishment of UNCTED, and, and then thereafter CTITF again, in their initial inception, largely human rights-free zones. And I would close by just saying that the effects of 20 years of counterterrorism have been really the marginalization of human rights. But more than that, the idea that you can target people engaged in human rights and law-abiding practices and call them terrorists and not be called out in any way which is why we see the global targeting of human rights defenders, women human rights defenders, eco-warriors, women's rights activists, those who simply disagree with their governments, being called terrorists, with absolutely no accountability for that misuse of the global counterterrorism framework.
1: So you hear a lot also, especially uh, in the years... Uh after 9-11, but even now, that counterterrorism measures can be effective even if they violate human rights, that they consider them separate. It can be either or. How do you feel about that?
2: I think it's bunkum. I think there's zero evidence to support it empirically. I think what we know, let's take an example of the extraordinary study carried out by UNDP on pathways to extremism in Africa that demonstrates perhaps in a a very clear and unequivocal way that one of the singular uh, triggers to the mobilization of violence, including terrorism, is human rights abuses by the state. I can tell you from 40 years in Belfast that we know, and those of us who've lived in armed conflict, those of us who know it, not those of us who sit in ivory towers in other parts of the world who've never experienced it, know the intimate relationship between abusive counterterrorism, which violates human rights, and the perpetuation of a cycle of violence that includes further violence, further terrorism, There's very little doubt. I think if we were to do an aggregation of academic or policy studies, no one of serious academic credentials would suggest that abusing human rights is good counterterrorism. In fact, I think precisely we've seen this in the global counterterrorism strategy in recent years, a recognition of so-called conditions conducive, which include violations of human rights. And in a way, I sort of... (laughs) I, I shouldn't say I have sympathy, but I feel sorry for those who make those arguments, because not only are they doing abusive human rights, violative dignity eh um, uh, depriving actions, but they're doing terrible security. They're engaging in acts that are likely to continue to keep us in a perpetual cycle of, tit- of violence and that create generation upon generation of new uh, cycles of
1: violence. So, what would you consider the biggest challenge that remains today in relation to counterterrorism?
2: Well, I would say we have two big challenges, and um, counterterrorism, in some ways, has is has become a meaningless term. It's everything and nothing, because as I said, if we look as my mandate does at the practices of states around the world, and we benchmark. Many states, all the time, we review national legislation as it in, in periodic and sustained ways. What we see is an epidemic of abuse of counterterrorism. So the single largest problem facing counterterrorism is the abuse of counterterrorism, which makes it ineffective, inadequate, and then continues to perpetuate violence in the places where it is allegedly intended to be uh, operating positively. Related to that is the growth of counterterrorism architectures, including at the United Nations that are eating up everything around it, eating up development, eating up education, eating up health. These are not and should not be security led uh, paradigms or practices. When they become security led, they cease to serve the communities who need those most. And so what we need believe it or not, in my view, 20 years after 9-11, is serious pruning of an expansive global counterterrorism architecture that is not working and not delivering. And We need to go back to some basics on how we make fragile, complex societies work and also to fundamentally address the conditions conducive to violence, which includes in many countries
1: the acts of counterterrorism itself. We see that after each wave of terrorist attacks, not only after 9-11, but also, for example, after the wave of terrorist attacks in Europe in 2016, more legislation is being adopted. We see that counter terrorism laws are moving into the pre-criminal space, for example, by criminalizing traveling or staying in a conflict zone. There is a tendency to over-securitize Are you advocating we should de-securitize the way we approach conflict and terrorism?
2: Well, there's a reasonable place for security. I'm not arguing against security. But I think that what we've seen happen over the last 20 years is the expansion of security discourses into places where they simply don't belong. That includes health and education. It includes children's sports. Um, it includes all kinds of areas where security actors have seen opportunities both to expand their influence, to gather more information and to engage in the exercise of um, securitizing a range of spaces in the view that that actually is the prevent, the most effective, that's a preventive mechanism that works. And I think what that does is that it fundamentally both undermines the security of those of those acts and it commodifies them and those on the ground those who are subject to those kinds of practices are rarely consulted if I were to give one piece of advice which I usually give to security actors is listen to the people you're pushing your security measures out on go and talk to local communities and let me be it's not easy to talk to local communities because they don't trust you and they have good reason not to trust you. But this idea that we can produce global and regional and national security in highly masculine closed spaces where those who are most affected by the security measures never get to sit in the room, never get asked, do these things work or they don't? How do they affect your community? How do you experience this security? Because often what we see is they experience the security that's projected onto them, the security needs of others, the reassurance needs of others, but never get heard on what their own security needs are, the kinds of securities that would essentially enable and support those communities to thrive and create the conditions in which violence and, and terrorism is not likely to spark and take hold. And for me, at least, if we took the time to talk to women in most of those societies, we'd learn a lot more than we learn from the men in suits who tend to sit around in New York talking about
1: how to do security in other people's countries. We spoke a lot of the challenges of countering terrorism and the impact on human rights. So, what has the international community, in particular the international architecture dealing with terrorism, contributed in the last 20 years?
2: I think I'm very pessimistic,
1: Tanya. What
2: would I say we've contributed? Well, I do think, so for example, I think we've seen more legal clarity around certain uh, acts of violence. So for example, countering terrorism, finance, we've seen greater clarity on issues relating to critical infrastructure. There are areas where I think there's been a sharpening and understanding of state obligation under international law. In the PCV area, I'm just, a skeptic, because let's just say there's no legally agreed international definition of what is extremism. So states get to call whomever they like an extremist. And from my experience, in many countries, that means the person who's a religious believer, the person who's a minority, the person who's LGBTQI, the woman who is advocating for equal rights is viewed as an extremist because she's she or they are arguing for things that power in government simply doesn't seem to want to give, even if they're protected by international law. When I look at the international architecture, no, I don't see a, a great deal. What I see is securitization, but I don't see security. And I think the epitome of the failure of the last twenty years is seen in the events in Afghanistan. If our counter-terrorism frameworks were working, we wouldn't be where we are. And we are where we are today. Um, I'm deeply cynical about the growth of, of security spaces, both at the UN, regionally and nationally. These do not generally function to serve the communities who have the greatest vulnerabilities to violence well. They do precisely the opposite. So my view is we need a fundamental rethink and perhaps the failure in Afghanistan will be the moment of clarity where we might, with fresh minds, look at what has happened in the last 20 years and be prepared instead of self-congratulations, which is the primary motif of counterterrorism globally, might be prepared to take a long, hard look at where we are and might be prepared to take a look at the cost of counterterrorism in the countries that are often its greatest
1: opponents. So before I turn to a few questions specifically on the recent events in Afghanistan, I wanted to also ask on the lack of definition you already alluded to. There is a lack of an internationally agreed definition on terrorism, on violent extremism, and on national security. Do you consider that this is a problem as we go forward?
2: It's the absolute. This problem of lack of definition is actually the mother problem. It's at the heart of the structural and normative problems and challenges we have in counterterrorism. I would distinguish between counterterrorism and violent extremism or extremism in this space. In the terrorism, we have multiple conventions, treaties that define acts of terrorism. We have uh, reference to terrorism in the in the Geneva Convention, so we have a clear hold into the normative framework of the international law of armed conflict and we have a num- we have the model definition that's proposed by my mandate which has been used by some not many states so counter terrorism itself as a phenomenon doesn't lack definition for acts of terrorism and so from the mandate's perspective we continually urge states if they want to act within the rule of law to act within the framework of those acts that are agreed to be acts of terrorism under international law that's not a that, that is actually an adequate and bounded universe of work on terrorism. Countering violent extremism and extremism is an entirely different category. There is no agreed definition. There's nothing like a list of acts, a convention. um, And that is, as a result, probably the most problematic area of state practice, precisely because uh, what we notice is even though the global counterterrorism strategy talks about violent extremism conducive to terrorism as the legal phenomena, states drop violent and they also drop conducive to terrorism and what they legislate and regulate for is so-called extremism. And again, my mandate has tracked closely at national level what's happening in legislation and what we can tell you without any, uh, without any, um, Uh, 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 you know, modification, I suppose, is that what we see is rife and sustained abuse at the national level. So is there work to be done? Yes. Would it help if we had a multilateral uh, treaty on terrorism, the one that's been sitting uh, in the UN for 30 years? Yes, it would help. But actually, I want to say that it serves states' interests not to have a definition The reason we don't have a definition is precisely because states get to call out those acts that they want as terrorism. They get cover for misuse. They get the space to call whomever they like a terrorist. And, of course, if we talk about authoritarian states in particular, This is a boon because what you have is the legitimacy of the international legal system all saying we're all against terrorism, but it's like the emperor's new clothes. No one will actually say that the state doing X or Y is naked and what that is is not terrorism because we have the perfect gentleman's agreement. And of course it is a gentleman's agreement because there are very few women in the room when these decisions are made. And what that does is enable states to have the legitimacy of the international system enabling and supporting their misuse. And it's long past time that that stopped.
1: So we all have been following the developments in Afghanistan. After 20 years, the U.S. and the Allied troops have withdrawn, and the country is now in the hands of the Taliban. Has uh, the international community failed to prevent and suppress terrorism in Afghanistan?
2: I mean, Afghanistan is both a tragedy um, but it's an outrage. We have a non-state armed group whose members, many of whom are sitting on designated terrorist lists and associated entities essentially marching into Kabul and the world stands on the sidelines and essentially says nothing. Um, Those of us who've watched the Taliban over 20 years, those of us who work on issues related to victims of terrorism, know the Taliban very well. We know exactly in the last six months what they have done as they have swept through the provinces. And we know uh, UN Special Procedures, myself included, have consistently said that we believe that serious violations of international law, including international humanitarian law, have been committed in Afghanistan by the Taliban. And what we have is appears to be essentially an embrace of the things that we say we would never embrace over the past 20 years. It's a chronic, devastating, unforgivable failure. And I want to just say who the failure falls on. It doesn't fall on us, those of us who sit in our comfortable homes in the West, lamenting Afghanistan. It falls on the women human rights defenders that we have encouraged, the women that we have brought to capitals, to the UN, to the Security Council. We've encouraged them to use their voice. We've congratulated them on being ambassadors for women's rights. And now they risk either the ignominy of being held in their homes hostage indefinitely or killed. For using their voice to reassure us that human rights are alive and well in afghanistan it will fall on the minority ethnic and religious groups who have been consistently targeted by the taliban in the last years particularly in the recent months as the talks were going on in doha it will fall on artists on musicians on human rights defenders on those who participated in public life, particularly women. Those are the people who will suffer from not only our failure by simply not staying in Afghanistan, by walking out with no plan and leaving everyone to it, but also by our responsibility for what will happen to them by having encouraged and supported them and given them the notion that they were valued, that they were going to be protected. And... And I think it's deeply concerning. I think there is an interesting alignment between those who do security and those who do human rights and then those who do both at the moment, which is, we saw the 1267 committee briefing on the Taliban to the Security Council a number of months ago. We know what the security assessment is on the danger of Al Qaeda and other affiliated groups. And the human rights defenders and actors like myself understand precisely the Taliban. And we are highly sceptical of the reassurances we hear in Doha, which have little or no relationship to what's actually happening on the ground.
1: Now that the Taliban have taken control of Afghanistan, everyone is concerned with the threat they pose to international community. Part of the Doha deal, was that the Taliban promised not to allow Afghan soil to be used for international terrorism. The UN mission in Afghanistan has reported a 50% increase in violence in the first five months of this year. Violence against civilians, violence against minorities, violence against Afghan army who have surrendered. And in addition, we've seen many reports coming out of summary executions, house searches, and women being banned from television. Could you zoom in the threat the Taliban poses to national security, to the Afghan people and their human rights? So I think
2: I would say that there are, what do we know about the threat the Taliban poses to human rights? Well, first of all, there's the threat of impunity for the acts that they've already committed. I just want to recall some of the most egregious incidents of recent months: the bombing of a maternity hospital in Kabul, the targeting of girls' schools, the killing of the government's media spokesman. To be very clear, we know who they target, how they've targeted. So the first casualty of this moment is accountability for victims of terrorism, for the idea. So subscribe to states who say they care about victims of terrorism. that Victims have the right to know what happened, to have accountability and to have remedy. And the failure of the Human Rights Council to establish a fact-finding commission, which was the minimal request from the government of Afghanistan and human rights uh, uh, experts, is damning for a Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Council is... I think, should be collectively holding its head in shame this morning at the resolution that was passed uh, on Afghanistan, the first resolution. The second thing is who's going to bear the brunt? Well, we know what has happened to women under uh, the Taliban. And I think two things are true simultaneously. We know that. The strictest interpretation, well, I shouldn't say strictest interpretation, it's a unique interpretation of Sharia law advanced by the Taliban, which does not allow women to exercise any of the range of normal participations that we would consider to be protected by international law for women. Uh, women in Afghanistan risk the reality of living in a state which would be a state of gender apartheid with all of the consequences that follow for them. For human rights defenders, what do we know they risk? They risk death. They risk arbitrary detention. They risk harm. All of these things are known. These are not unknowns because we've seen them in the last six months and beyond. But to have the international community, which has spent 20 years talking about the importance of suppressing and preventing terrorism under Chapter 7 of the Security Council, stand on the sidelines and pretend that this is not happening in the sense that they will not create any mechanisms of oversight or accountability, nor even cooperate and coordinate with one another to ensure the safe evacuation of those who will be likely most at risk is again a moral outrage. I, I lack adequate words for what I see in Kabul. But human rights defenders, we've we talk to them every day. They will not forget this.
1: Nor should they. I think you have said it all. Um, there's not much, uh, to add actually or to ask, but maybe as one final question, what should the international community be doing? Not only in countering terrorism, but in protecting the human rights of the Afghan people. Okay. The
2: answer to that is implement the UN Charter, which protects the right to dignity and equality of women. Make those words actually mean something. Why are people cynical about human rights? Because they watch Afghanistan and they see a deal that's been cut in Doha between actors who have killed, maimed and destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And the words human rights or women don't appear because states have stitched it up so what do we what should we be doing we should be standing to make the charter mean what it says where it means and matters the most which is Afghanistan the test case for human rights and the test case for for counterterrorism if counterterrorism means anything because what Afghanistan tells us is that actually neither human rights or counterterrorism worth the paper they're written on because what triumphs is state interest power in its rawest and most ugly form and so what do we do in the meantime those of us who are standing with human rights are trying to get people out of afghanistan and telling those who stay that we will not forget them that's pretty inadequate right now it feels inadequate and I lack a vocabulary, again, for the moment that we're in, because I feel we have left let so many people down. And those of us who do human rights are in a Sisyphean struggle because we push big rocks up mountains. And then we watch them roll down again. And that is just what's happened in Afghanistan. A huge rock, which is a rock of people's lives, has fallen to the bottom of the highest mountain. And now we have to start from scratch and try to protect them again, stand with them again, do what we can. But that rock, it feels for those in Afghanistan, it feels impossible. And I think for those of us on the outside, it feels, it also feels impossible. But then this is what human rights defenders do. We pick ourselves up and we start again. And right now what we're doing is trying to get people out to safety and reassure those who were there that we will
1: not forget them. Thank you, Fiannula.
2: Thanks.
0: This has been Counterterrorism After 9-11, a new podcast series from the International Centre for Counterterrorism. For more counterterrorism insights, please find us at icct.nl. Stay tuned for more episodes of Counterterrorism After 9-11.